The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Welcome back, James. Thank you, Alan. Happy birthday for last week. So have you, you've toured Japan now. Yes. And uh, uh, you now get it? Do you understand Japan? Well, it was my third visit, so uh, I don't think I completely understand it, but we certainly got a great... Uh, view of the country, lots of different places, and because we stayed in Airbnbs, we're sort of living among the Japanese for very short amounts of time. But it's, I reckon, that one of the, my favourite things to do when you go overseas is go to the supermarket, and you see sort of how you know people live and what what, what surprised you about the supermarkets. Uh, it's almost a daily thing going to the supermarket. Um, I guess that makes sense because everyone's houses are pretty small. But uh, the sort of daily trek to the supermarket, lots more um, prepared, ready-to-eat food, lots of cheap booze on the shelf. Um, yeah, it was, just, it was just good fun. Great eating and drinking in Japan, if, if nothing else. And there's lots else good. So uh, were you surprised by the RBA decision this week? Uh, well, no. I thought they would – I thought they should hike again. Um, but – yeah, I was I was a bit surprised. I heard you on the radio though earlier this week, and you you weren't surprised. No, and I, I thought they shouldn't do it. Yes, <laughs> but, but I thought they would. Yeah, uh, because they basically told us they would. Because yep. they said that um, uh, the they said in the last minutes that the forecast for the staff is that rates that the that inflation would come down to three percent inside the target band uh, by mid twenty twenty five, and that this required more rate hikes. Yeah. And then the board said in the minutes, uh, we can't tolerate anything longer than mid-2025. Yeah. So that was basically saying there has to be another rate hike. It's time. And so if, the, if you think that there's, there has to be another rate hike, which they clearly did, then they might as well get on with it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the other thing that I noted in my column in the New Daily this morning. Yes. Which <laughs> undoubtedly you've studied carefully. <laughs> I haven't yet, but I'll tell you why in a sec. Yep. Um, uh, that uh, uh, this was the first meeting um, since they were humiliated by the RBA review. Yes, do you think? and and yes, not just that they were basically traduced. That um, they were sacked. Mm. The treasurer accepted the recommendation to replace them with a monetary policy committee. Yes, so they were sacked. Right, so they're lame ducks now, and they Didn't have look too lame on. Tuesday. <laughs> no, but they, but they have a reputation now to uh, to rebuild. Savage, yeah. I mean, they were they were savaged in that review. Well, and one of the points in that review was around, uh, to your point, how how long should it take to get inflation back to target, and and you know should it be over time as the RBA likes to, or should it be well, over, what does over time mean? Yeah, and I thought that was a reasonable point in the review. Like so much of the RBA is like reading between the lines and. You know, assessing the smoke signals, like just come and tell us. Yeah, exactly. what do you reckon? That's right. <laughs> and the other point about this week's meeting, apart from the fact that it was in Perth, mm. is that it's the week before the budget, right? And there is clearly going to be 
extra spending in the budget. Yes. You know, the, the I mean, uh, Jim Chalmers keeps saying it's going to be responsible. Yes. Cost of living relief. Yes. But, but what the hell does that mean? I mean, cost of living relief is... Uh, that I mean, what the, what the RBA is trying to do is increase the cost of living. Yes, right. That's what <laughs> exactly. it's doing. So you got to work. He's got a, It was a preemptive strike. Do you think? Well, I think they would have thought we're better off acting before the budget yeah. than than responding to it afterwards. Yeah, which looks more more of a political act. Yes. Yeah. No. Good point. Um, and then there's just the old problem that inflation's still at 7% and real interest rates are still deeply, deeply negative. Like, isn't that sort of still an issue that they just haven't made much, haven't had any traction bringing down inflation? that's right. But except for the lag that monetary policy operates within. But gee, the lag's lag's laggy. Like, there's really been very little movement at the station there. The lag is indeed laggy. (laughs) But you know, it's you a know this, this is now the fastest. <laughs> this is the fastest tightening cycle in history, and it hasn't done no. a whole heap to inflation. That's right. Yeah, and in fact, house prices are starting to go up again. Uh, well, yeah, there was a good note from Victor Schwetz, um, Macquarie's strategist, sort of saying, "What are the scars from COVID? Everything's sort of getting back to normal, and I guess inflation's the last scar in a way." But. Um, yeah, it's a question of how how quickly you think that's going to fall away. Um, the reason I didn't read your column this morning, yes. Alan, is because I was listening to the uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. Who, oh, of course, who also hiked today. Yes, uh, twenty five basis points to between five percent. And what did 5. he say? I didn't 5%. listen to it. Unlike he you. said uh, very similar to the RBA. Inflation's too sticky. Inflation's too high. We. Got to get it down. And yes, we'd sort of like to pause um, or we'd like to, um, you know, stop raising rates, but we just don't have a lot of wriggle room. Inflation's too high. And I think this is really interesting because if you look at what, um, you know, equity markets are up since the middle of last October, the S&P 500's up 14%, the ASX 200's up about 11%. So we've been, we're in the middle of a rally, right? And that is predicated on the idea that central banks will start cutting rates. And the Fed is supposed to start cutting rates according to the bond market by September. Now, I just wonder if the message is starting to get through to investors, hang on, that might not happen. And if it doesn't happen, what needs to be repriced? Does the bond market need to be repriced? Well, probably. And does the stock market need to be repriced? Because it too is banking on these interest rate cuts. I just don't see the evidence that we're getting cuts before the end of the year in in Australia or America. I I, I don't get it. Like, well, I mean, so what- I, I don't know what the the Fed's predictions are, but if the RBA, as it is, is predicting uh, is forecasting inflation back to three percent in two years, mm. like in mid twenty twenty five. There's then, no room. For then that. at the end of this, towards the the second half of this year and next year, it's still fighting inflation. Yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, that's the that's the. But reality. I think it that's might be something similar in in the America. I, I just something's not. I mean, I know, I know the bond market's always right, and that's the great sort of idea. But I, I sort of wonder if the bond market's got this. No, one the a bond bit market wrong. isn't always right. <laughs> I know. No but, market's you know, always that's right. the sort of that's the that's the mantra of investors yeah, yeah. have. So, um, the other reason, Alan, that I ha- wasn't listening to you. Uh, reading you this morning was that I've been just listening to um, NAB, which is the first of the big banks to report. 
You have you have a. I've full, had a busy morning. <laughs> full, full mornings, um, and James. so they've had a pretty good result. Uh, um, return on equity at NAB is back to thirteen point seven percent. Cash what earnings up uh, from what? Uh, from about twelve, I think. But that's sort of back to yep. back to big levels, sort of. Um, way before the Royal Commission levels. Cash earnings up 17%, 83% interim dividend, up from 73% in the first half of 22. The, the profit was slightly below expectations at $4.2 billion. And, and the reason's interesting. Basically, NAB has stepped back from the mortgage market where every bank and non-bank lender is cutting each other's faces off to try and sell mortgages. Uh, he's stepped back from that, Ross McEwen, and is and so the profit from the retail bank was down slightly below expectations. So that's an interesting, interesting sort of uh, yeah. I think you and I have agreed in the past that Ross, the boss McEwen, is the best banker in the country. Uh, yeah, he's up there. I think he's one or two. Him or Matt Common, I think you'd you'd be pretty close. But yeah. I mean, th- this bank is just. So transformed from a couple of years ago in the way that, you know, it used to get to the NAB result and there'd be all these write-downs and, you know, weird stuff coming out. There's none of that anymore. There's no – there's no there's such clean results and I think that's what McEwen's sort of legacy is going to be, just cleaning the joint up. So hmm. good, for, good for NAB shareholders. But interesting, he, he, he's sort of thinking – Tough six months ahead. It gets more difficult from here. He's not seeing a recession. Um, he thinks there's still a lot of strength and resilience in but, the. But credit growth is slowing. Credit right? growth is slowing. Interesting, uh, uh, though, as you'd expect. Yeah, yeah. So they've got they've they've they rang they've rung up seven thousand borrowers who they thought would be in a bit of trouble. They're coming from fixed loans to variable loans. They they bought at the peak. They rang them and said, "Need any help? You know, we're just getting in early." Only 13 people said, yeah, we'd like a bit of assistance. Huh. 13 out of 7,000. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? That is. Yeah. <laughs> and so even where they're seeing a little pickup in rates uh, of people falling behind their mortgages on a 30-day and 60-day basis, that's not flowing through to 90 days, so people are sorting themselves out. So interesting resilience goes to why the RBA hiked, I guess. You had an interesting comment the other day on uh, Qantas. Yes. <laughs> um, well, it was just the fact that Richard Goiter is the chairman of both Qantas and AFL. Yes. And the um, the CEO searches resulted in the same thing. They both did an international search. Both ended up picking someone down the corridor. <laughs> oh, funny that. And both have uh, got the new uh, the new CEO waiting five months. Yes, after the old CEO's been around for a very long time. I know, and, and they're, they're not they're going to sit there. What's going on? Why are they why are they having a five month transition from now? I mean, that is that is very unusual. Right? It is unusual. Well, the transition's not a transition's not necessarily unusual, but uh, it is unusual in that. Both of these people have been at the organisations for a very long time. So Andrew Dillon at the AFL, I think he's been there for 20 years, and Hudson, Vanessa Hudson at Qantas. Been there 28 years. 28 years. I mean, she's done everything, audit yeah. to catering to – so I, I don't quite know what handing over is particularly needed at Qantas. AFL, I can understand it a little bit more. They've got to get through this collective bargaining agreement, the Tasmania stuff – but it is weird. Like you talked about the RBA being a bit lame duckish. 
It is weird, particularly at the AFL, that the new CEO will inherit a bunch of decisions made by the old CEO that are hugely important to Andrew Dillon's tenure. Yeah. Like the media rights deal and Tasmania and the collective bargaining agreement, Gillian McLaughlin will sort of get them done and then say, good luck, Andrew. I'm out of here. You can implement all those. It, it is that, that one is a touch weird, but... Well, I think the other one, I think the Alan Joyce, Vanessa Hudson thing is weird, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe there are transitions. Most of the time, the CEO goes, see you later. Yeah. We have seen a few more recently where it's been a long goodbye. Um, Centre group where Peter Allen sort of handed over over probably nine months. Um, so I think it's becoming a bit more usual, but... It's interesting, though, for Goida to do two in two days. I know. <laughs> Meg O'Neill, where, I mean, Goida's also the chairman of Woodside. I wonder if Meg O'Neill, the CEO <laughs> there, was worried. She's but. shifting nervously in her seat. <laughs> she's, she's actually reasonably new, so she wouldn't have been uh, concerned. But it's a big week for Richard Goida. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Now, listen, um, our first question today is from Oscar. Yes. Who, uh, who gives us a bit of a chip about... Spending too much time answering questions. That's a question about and, questions. And saying, uh, what, want a better balance between discussion and question time. Um, and uh, that is to say, he wants more discussion, mm. less questions. I mean, look, the, th- the thing is, Oscar, we just, we had so many questions, we thought we should answer a few of them, you know. Yes. Um, so we're just trying to do our best here. But we hear you, Oscar, and we'll get the balance a bit better. So we've been going for a while now. How long? 20 minutes? No. 15 minutes? We're probably half halfway through. So there we go. Okay. Halfway. Questions. Take that, Oscar. <laughs> Luke says um, he just wants to correct a couple of things that Stephen Mayne said that he says are slightly wrong. And um, in the most recent episode, Stephen said, uh, pay off your HEX debt before June 30. Please tell your listeners HEX is actually indexed June the 1st. So you'd be wanting to pay it off pretty soon Mm. to avoid a delay with the tax office. And also another piece of advice a few weeks ago regarding the first first home super scheme that was slightly wrong. From memory, the advice was to remove it as the super balances will be getting a hit. FHSSS is not tied to the performance of your fund. It's actually tied to the deeming rate. That means these balances will never go down and should hopefully see a boost in returns with the deeming rate. So don't rush to remove them, says Luke. Um... Uh, I pass that on for what it's worth. I don't. I haven't checked it myself. <laughs> Perhaps I should have. I think, but Luke, uh, Luke's been a sounds like he knows what he's before, so he, he's he all probably over. knows what he's talking about. Mm. Thank you, Luke. All right, Rob says a recent Money Market article talked about how there was a re- review of discretionary trust. It was quite alarmist in suggesting that it might be necessary to justify a beneficiary's income. I don't need to justify my income, except to my employer. Why is this different? What's the go with the review? Well, it's it's simply about uh, income splitting. If you're going to uh, if you've got a trust, mm. uh, why have you got a trust? Probably to income split. Yep. To distribute money to your spouse or your children or something, and you have to justify the fact that they got some income and they did something for it. Isn't that right? I, I believe uh, that that sounds right. Yeah. Of course it is. Yeah. I mean, I mean you can't you can't you, the the requirement is that you know if you're going to distribute income from the trust to another beneficiary, uh, then that has to be earned. It can't just be distributed. Right. 
Yes. Do you think this comes to the – there's a bit of a general suspicion about trust sometimes from regulators? I well, get that feeling. Well, perfectly justified. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excellent. Rabbit says, rabbit? Um, <laughs> Uh, um, who, was the, who was the bloke who wrote the rabbit novels? Uh, Updike. Yeah, that's John right. Updike. John Updike. Yeah, that's right. So we've had a... <laughs> Here he is. Someone's popped out of a John Updike novel. Uh, hi, Alan and Stephen. CBR, um, CBR are merging with TRAC, Tracker, moving to the NYSE. Just wondering what the process is when your holdings move from the ASX to NYSE. How do I go about trading or managing them when they do move? That's a great question. Yeah. And I'm not sure. Look, I know some companies, they'll have a, a, a depository receipt, so it'll still be an ASX-traded instrument that lets you own take ownership. I, I don't know if that's the case in this deal. Most of, the, most of the online brokers trade in overseas shares now anyway. Yeah. So, you, I mean, if, if you're with Comsec or someone, you, sh, you know, CMC Markets, you should be okay. Yeah. You just have to yes. uh, continue to trade. And you might need to, I don't know, do something in the back end to make that happen but uh yeah and i guess you might need to check if track is a company that's on the list of um overseas uh stocks that your broker lets you trade you know some parts of the market it can be difficult uh in smaller caps so uh, chris says love the pod with the pending stage three tax cuts and more generous childcare subsidies uh, benefiting families earning above 350000 It seems there will be a number of families with more spare cash to spend. Will this have a meaningful impact on inflation and cause the RBA to go harder on rates? Or is this insignificant given the size of the economy to make an impact? Uh, well, the Stage 3 tax cuts are due to kick in uh, mid-next year. Mm-hmm. So um, we're a little way off those. Yes, but uh, as I pointed out before, the RBA's forecasts show that inflation doesn't get back to within its target until mid-2025, yeah. a year later. Yep. So according to the RBA, uh, inflation will still be too high next year uh, and they'll still be fighting it. And the in the first year, the stage three tax cuts inject $20 billion into the economy. Yes. Into people's pockets. Yes. So... Uh, that's pretty. Uh, that's a pretty inflationary. Logically thing. inflationary, yeah, yeah. You would think. So I think. Uh, but Chris, it is, Chris is onto something. Th- I mean, as you say, we're coming up to the budget next week, and this is the great dilemma. You know, cost of living relief invariably adds to, to the inflationary pressures that the RBA is fighting against. So it is. That is the thing that yes. Chalmers is going to need to do. How much it, relief can he can he provide? But it'll be responsible, though. <laughs> exactly. It'll be responsible. How much relief can he provide or should he provide I to was not reminded, tip the scale? I, I was reminded of the dead parrot sketch of Monty Python, <laughs> where the guy says, uh, the shopkeeper says, beautiful, beautiful bird, the Norwegian blue, beautiful plumage. And the, guy, <laughs> and the customer says, plumage, the plumage don't enter into it. <laughs> and responsible doesn't enter into it. It's just it's, a, it's either it's inflationary just, or it's not in your mind. It's just plumage. Right. Okay. I'm just saying. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> David says, with the exception of self-managed super funds, what do you think are the best super funds for people with a high balance, uh, e.g. one to two million? Industry super funds pitch their low fee value proposition at low average balance members. These have investment fees running at about 0.5%. Are there any funds that pitch a worthwhile value proposition at high balance individuals? 
Uh, I'm thinking a fund that caps in, in admin fees and has ETF-like investment fees on high balance accounts, 0.1% and below. I'm not sure, David, but I, I and I and I would respectfully point out that given the size of your balance, perhaps trying to scrimp and save on the admin fees isn't the greatest idea. Like find someone who you think is going to be a responsible manager of your money, and you may need to pay for them to manage your large balance. Like- well, and I would <laughs> respectfully point out that the only uh, fund manager um, that caps fees is my employer, InvestSmart. Right. Uh, and they are capped at $451 a year. Right. Okay. This, is on, this is on the ETF portfolios that they have. Yep. Um, but it's not a super fund. Right, yeah. so you would have to. It would have to be a self-managed fund that it uses, that uses that, uh, uses that investment product. Yep. But if if that was the case, the fee, the the admin fee would be capped. Yeah. There's yep. still there's still underlying ETF fees, which are generally pretty low. My my grandchildren have arrived. Oh, fantastic! But they're they're waiting out there. Oh. Anyway. Send them in. They might be able to answer some of these questions for us. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there you go. I don't think anyone else caps the admin fees. Well, the, uh, the, the, the idea with – I haven't looked for a while, but the, the whole idea with that industry super funds is that it's a dollar a week admin yeah, and then a percentage um, – uh, you know, Yeah, so I think your admin fees are, are held down. But, yeah, there will be a percentage. And, and I, don't, I don't know who – has ETF-like investments. But I think you really just want to be careful. Like, pick the fund that you think is going to do the best job managing your money, not the one that's cheapest. It's like anything in life. You've got to be – there is a trade-off. Get what you pay for, you get David. Get what you pay for, David, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, my wife and I are in our late Who 70s. Who says this? Richard says. Richard says this. My wife and I are in our late 70s and working a little part-time. Where can we park short-term funds? We have the maximum in AMP savings in Macquarie and do not want to breach the limit of the 250,000k government guarantee. These funds are earmarked for one, emergency, two, supporting our seven grandchildren as they study. Our personal cash flow is safe and sufficient for our daily needs. So what's the best interest rate which is safe and easily accessible should we consider a money market ETF? I think you might want to consider a bond. I mean... Uh, you'd, you'd want to hold to maturity. It depends if you know if you know how long you want to park the money for. Mm. If it's three, five, or seven years. Yep. Um, you, if you buy a corporate bond, um, you know you can get a five-year bond that pays whatever it does or whatever it pays, and you get your money back at the end of five years. Yeah. The, is the other thing, um, and I don't, we don't know how much cash they have, but I mean, there's there's other savings options other than AMP and Macquarie. You, you could have a number of different $250,000 accounts, yeah. can you? I mean, uh, 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 the, the deposit competition well, is it, heating up. So it is the case that the, the bonds are not government guaranteed. Yeah, that's yeah. true, unless you buy a government bond. But the government bond interest rate at the moment is 3.5% or something. Yes. So you could, you could buy a government bond, which was government guaranteed, therefore, yep. for five years yep. and get 3.5%. Yeah. But I think in, in in these savings accounts, you're getting over four at the moment. But right. I, I would have thought there might be a few more savings account options you can try sure. before you need to go ETF or bond. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Pete says, love your show. Also love Leclerc's long macchiatos with oat milk. So Pete obviously comes here yeah. too. There you go. And I haven't had the, <laughs> the oat milk. After regularly buying 
VAS shares, VAS shares over the years, I've recently decided to sell some. As I've purchased a number of shares at different prices at different times, how do I go about identifying which specific shares I've sold for tax and accounting purposes? I can't seem to find a simple answer online. Uh, I think that's why you employ an accountant. Yeah, I'm not sure the answer. I would have thought it's all about the dates. I mean, wouldn't you know the dates that you sold and that's in the range or am I not thinking about it right? As in, I've sold in this period, so that matches up to that tax period. Or? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. No, no. You've got to you've got to have the the dates bought and sold. Yeah. You've got to have the the cost price of the uh, that you paid. Yes. Okay. So it's that right. that that equation that he's struggling with. Yeah. So I mean, well, I mean, it depends how many you got, I suppose. But if you you know. This is the sort of thing is what I employ an accountant for. Yes, T- take your uh, broker records to your accountant and say, can you help me with this, please? Um, this question from Liam's good fun. Let's do this one. I remember sitting in an all-hands meeting in a Mervac regional office around the time of the GFC. The state manager was doing his job to reassure the troops and confidently told the crowd that Mervac's $5 plus share price was rock solid, couldn't drop below the net tangible asset value somewhere around $4. Shortly afterwards, the Mervac, Mervac was trading for much less than a dollar. The NTA was down around the mark and around that mark too. Just just a case of the party being over and valuations crashing to a new post-GFC reality. But super funds are allocating an increasing component of funds directly into un- unlisted assets that are not transparently valued in real time by an open market. For example, the commercial real estate sector is in trouble, but no one wants to revalue it acu- accurately to suit current market conditions. Conditions. It's one thing when people's super balances are dropping hard due to the flow and effects of an open market, but I don't think that dropping valuations on unlisted assets would be viewed as pragmatically by media and the masses. Do you see any uproar coming when history repeats and unlisted asset values are forced to step change down to a new reality? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we do. We, this is not going to be pleasant, I don't no. think. Um, uh, the, all of the property... I don't think we're going to see this sort of commercial property explosion we're seeing in the US where valuations crater. But they do need to come down. They have not come down, and they clearly should. And that's going to start happening in August when we get the uh, yeah, reporting season. But not only, not only because of increasing capitalisation rates, yes. which have has happened, and that is the, the key reason that valuations will come down. because So the rising interest rates. Rising yeah. interest rates, which, the, which turn into a cap rate uh, – you know, in the property sector, but also because um, everyone's working from home. Yeah, or doing different things, yeah. And, and shopping online or whatever. I mean, you know, I think that the, the world has changed yeah. somewhat. Yeah, yeah. So what, what, I, what I don't like about this, the fact it's been slow, is that we're, you know, the, 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 the way super fun entry and exit prices are priced means that some people are sort of getting – and the fact that these private valuations haven't flown through yet means that some people are getting the benefit and some people are going to lose out down the track. That, yeah. that's, what, that's what I think is going to create the real uproar. Yeah, let's, let's skip over. We've only got a couple of, uh, time for one more, I think, probably. Okay. Let's go with uh, Kyvan, who says, my home loan's about to come off its fixed rate year, fixed three-year period of 2.29% and I'm shopping around for the best rate. Is there a website that tracks the difference in the bank's rates to the cash rates over, say, the last five or 10 years? I feel this would be a better measure than the current variable rate offered by each bank, which can change, it appears, at their whim. That's an interesting idea. Which bank has consistently 
been competitive against the uh, um, the, the cash rate. I'm not aware of it. No, I don't the, think there is one, Kyle. No, well, but, the, uh, the websites that track or that show the uh, that give you comparisons yeah. of of interest rates is Rate City, Finder, yeah. Uh, what uh, can else? Star, can is Star, one. yeah, that's right. So you can find, you can do all those, but they don't. As far as I'm aware, they don't actually compare the historical rates with the cash rate. Yeah, at no. the time, I'm not sure how valuable it would be for you, Kevin, as well, Kevin. I think most, um, the, because the appetite for mortgages at institutions changes. From time to time. So at the moment, as we said at the top of the show, NAB has decided, hang on, we don't want to be in this market as aggressively as we were. CBA might decide that next week or Westpac or whoever. And so people come in and out of the market depending on the whim of the CEO and the what they need to do to drive their growth. So it is a bit of a moment in time thing, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, just one more. I've got to read this one from Ben. I keep hearing that the world is too, too much debt. But who is this money owed to? Is it aliens, the lizard people? In which case, why do we care? Or is it owed to future me or something like that? Why does it matter? It's all very confusing. Well, Ben, it's owed to other human beings, Mm. basically. Yes. Um, So one human being borrows from another human being. Essentially, I mean, look, it, it's it is it's, confusing it's, though. It's, it's, it's actually a really good question, isn't it? I know. Well, so governments and <laughs> companies and individuals borrow money from the bank. Yep. The bank raises the money from other human beings and other governments and other and businesses, other, exactly, which are ultimately other human beings. Yeah. But but he does make a sort of good point. Is it owed to future me or something? And it sort of is. Yeah. Sort of is, That's <laughs> but right. it is. It is. I mean, the I, other thing to bear in mind is that banks actually actually create money. Yeah, that's right. That's out right. of thin air. So the aliens and the lizard people are probably involved at some point. But it it is best to think of it all coming back to humans at the end of the day. Yes. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of the Money Cafe with the excellent James Thompson back in town. Uh, Stephen Mann will be back next week, so send in a question and we'll answer it together on next week's episode. Email at themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au and please keep the questions short and sharp. No attachments, <laughs> please. We got a couple of attachments, didn't we? We did, yes. Um, but we're inundated with questions, so fortunately we may not, and um, um, we may not, unfortunately we may not be able to always answer yours, but we'll do our best. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, I'm Alan Cole, founder of Eureka Report, and I'll see you next week. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Talk to you soon. 